Hey there, listener. This is uh, Chief Marketing Officer of National Land Realty, Mac Christian. Uh, I want to take a second to thank you uh, for listening to this podcast. This podcast has grown uh, four times what it did in the first year. This is we're on year number two of this. And we just got back from our national conference for our company. And it's, it's amazing to see a gathering of good people in one location. And I say that because there's a lot of companies out there and it's very rare that you can look at an organization that you work with and say, I don't, I don't know everybody in the organization. We've got a lot of people here, but I can say everybody that I have talked to in this company, you can look at them, shake their hand and look at them in the eye and say, that's a good person. Um, and, and it's not very common that you can do that. And I have, and I don't throw a lot of plugs on the company in here because the whole goal of this is to give value to listeners who have land. And, and if you're just selling yourself the whole time, it sort of gets in the way of that. And, but you know what, to heck with it. I wanted, I want to throw a plug on this one. Um, this is an amazing company with an amazing culture and some of the smartest people you will ever meet when it comes to land. There are, there are facts upon facts that, I learn on a daily basis and I try to get as much as I can into this podcast. So thank you to you listeners who enable us to grow. Uh, we can't do this kind of thing and I can't put my time into this kind of thing unless we have listeners and we have plenty and we have plenty more to gain. Um, and most of all, Thank you to all of the hardworking people of National Land Realty, from everybody from the field team, meaning the the real estate agents in the field, the land professionals, to the the team behind the scenes that does each and everything, each and every day. Everybody puts their blood, sweat, and tears into this, and and it, I can truly say, nothing but amazingly good people that lean on each other and always are discussing how they can help out the best interest of the land owners, sellers, buyers, everybody out there. Um, thank you. And on that note, uh, be sure to like, follow and review this podcast, especially follow uh, and can you continue to listen and and above all, I would say share uh, with people that you know who own land or are looking to acquire land. The educational value of this podcast is immense. Uh, so be sure to do those things. For, for us so we can continue to do this. Um, so anyways, I wanna carry on with the show now. I am gonna read this. This is where it's weird to do it on video because I do have to do this in one take. So I could stutter. Normally what I would do is get the audio done and I can mess up because I can go back and edit this. It's just a little trickier with video. So you get to see all my screw ups. I may screw up in this. Uh, that's It's a different kind of thing. This is the second time. This is our second episode of video. So. Uh, bear with me if I if I do do that, uh, and and I'm gonna go to my reading. You'll watch my eyes glancing from side to side now, um, but yeah, let's kick this off. Uh, so welcome to episode number eighty of the National Land Realty Podcast. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer of National Land Realty, and I will be your host for this episode. Remember, our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. Now. What is going to happen in agricultural land values in 2024? Today, we have somebody who can give you insight for the year ahead. 
Dr. Gary Schnitke is a professor in the University of Illinois College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences for Agricultural and Econ Agricultural and Consumer Economics. He is also the Soybean Industry Chair in Agricultural Strategy. Dr. Schnitke has a PhD in Agricultural e Economics, a Master's in Agricultural Economics, a Bachelor of Science in Agricultural Finance. Um, Dr. Schnitke is one of the United States' premier minds in agricultural economics, specifically in the Midwest. He has spent the last couple of decades educating farmers, ranchers, and academics on the economics of agriculture. As we find out in this episode, he's been speaking a lot less late, late a lot less lately, which makes this interview extra special. Now, sit back and enjoy. Okay, I am sitting here again, uh, again. We had you on last year, and uh, actually, so the podcast that we did with you last year was one of our highest downloaded podcasts that we did. And, and topically, it makes sense, right? We're talking about the projections for the year ahead, what we're looking at economically. And and Dr. Gary Schnitke is one of the leading uh, minds behind that sort of thing. Um, so we have here a professor of, of uh, agricultural and consumer economics, um, chair in agricultural strategy. Uh, you, you also work with soybean industries, um, tell us a little bit about sort of what you do. Just, it's better to hear it from you, um, you know, on, on the daily and some of your background and how you started working with, uh, you know, your, your current, your current, uh, position. Yeah. So I'm currently a professor in, uh, farm management here at the university of Illinois in the department of agriculture and consumer economics department. Uh, I got here by uh, growing up in, on a farm in Northwest Ohio and actually wanted to be a farmer at one point in my life, but uh, academics has treated me pretty well. So I kept going and got a PhD and uh, was at Ohio State on faculty for a while doing dairy farm management, but I've been back here since 1998. And what I do is spend most of my teaching, research, and extension time looking at the economics of grain farms in the Midwest. That branches off into Brazil because of Brazil's importance in the world soybean and increasingly corn markets. And... Um, look at conservation practices, risk management practices, crop insurance, and farmland prices, because they're very important in this whole whole matter. So that's uh that's how I got here. Excellent. And and so last year when we talked, you know, the the I, I love being able to circle back around on something like this because it makes it makes you look really good, right? Because our projections were uh, due to the price of inputs and and due to the limited inventories that you're seeing on the marketplace and just the, the general economics of, of agriculture, that we would see not a disaster in land prices. We would not see an increase in land prices. What we were probably looking at is more of a plateau that would hold for the majority of 2023. And dare I say, it looks like you might have been right. So yeah, that, <laughs> you got to bring those up when you get them right. <laughs> you got to bring, you, you got to do some crowing when you get those things right. Like, see, see. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know that's the conversation that we're going to kind of dive into now. 
what are we looking at with the price of inputs for 2024? Are we looking for that high price to hold? And and it, does it stem from, you know, what we were looking at in 2023 is, is fuel, particularly the natural gas, was holding fairly high. That was offsetting down the chain for fertilizers and things like that. So is is that similar to what we're looking at in 2024? Are, are we looking at possibly some relief? Yeah, we're, we're looking at some relief in fertilizer. And actually, natural gas has, has fallen quite a bit since last year. Um, fertilizers, and in particular, nitrogen, have fallen. Uh, we were looking at uh, anhydrous ammonia being at above $1,200 per ton um, throughout early last year. And now it's sort of in the seven to $800 per ton range. So that's a considerable fall. Uh, so we've, we're seeing some relief on the crop input side. Fertilizers probably come down. Pesticides down a bit, but but not 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 as much as some of the fertilizers and seeds basically holding steady and perhaps going up. So we are seeing relief, but we're still looking at uh, cost levels at being pretty high levels, at least pre two thousand. So um, before and after that date, the uh, cost have changed quite quite remarkably. Um, how has supply chain influenced the cost of of inputs over the last year and into 2024? And, and by supply chain, you know, the biggest one of that is going to be your transport fuel costs. Um, yeah, th- there's going to be that and there's going to be, you know, just general housing and, and you know, the the supply chain kind of logistics side of it. But the, I think the fuel is one of the biggest ones we look at there. Um, what what has that done to impact pricing and, and will that play a role? Yeah, so the supply chain, I would say, actually, from delivering product, have has 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 held up extremely well. We were really concerned about that throughout COVID, throughout um, in the in the Ukraine Russia war, obviously impacted that uh, quite those prices as well. We are we, the supply chain is delivering, but the costs are higher, right? It, and it's 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 not only fuel, it's labor, it's getting truck drivers, it's getting the whole nine yards. And so we're, we would expect the supply and put supplies to be delivered in a timely manner, but those being at higher cost. And actually, I, I personally don't see that ever going back to pre-2000 levels because um, fuels, well, who who knows what fuels are? But we have a little 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 conflict going on in the Middle East that could 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 spread out. So that and that wouldn't be a great thing for fuel costs. But the labor side of it and finding uh, employees to move the transportation and 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 the that sort of thing that's going to be tight forever. Right? We seem to have that new labor shortages and i don't see those going away yeah is that something that's that's influencing sort of how how pricing has been set as far as agricultural products the the labor because i mean labor struggles have it i want to say they really kicked off you know right when we when we had covid there there was they you know there was all kinds of names for what we were looking at in employment and the great resignation was one of the the terms thrown around 
but it's just been harder to find labor. Is that something that's carrying on through 2024? Well, yes, it is. Yeah. And every, every farmer has trouble finding employees and finding CDLs out there um, is just difficult. Uh, machinery uh, manufacturers are, have raised prices tremendously and uh, their labor costs have went up. And finding, uh, you know, like mechanics and uh, technicians for implement dealers is just just hard. So if you want to be young again and go into those markets, there's, there, there, there are jobs there. Yeah, and that's, is that, you know, it's, I, I like being able to ask somebody smarter than me. Um, you know, when we're looking at the at the economics of the situation, is that a downstream result of inflation that we're looking at there, whereby price of goods has gone up, so the required cost of of hiring somebody, people require more money to work because goods have gone up. Is that what we're looking at there? Is it, is it sort of an inflationary thing or or is this something else, like just a, a standard of living thing? So inflation plays a role in that, obviously. And, but, and, and, and once an inflationary spiral starts, it's, it's hard to slow that down. But the other part is just a supply issue. And, and we've, uh, demographically, there's far, far fewer young people coming on and then there's baby boomers reaching that uh, retirement age. So we're, we're looking at just a constriction of, of labor. We have an immigration uh, policy um, that limits immigration into this country. And whatever you think about that, it, that does uh, constrict labor supply. So goods will cost more. And you were talking about an, another conflict brewing, which is Iran or, or you know, we're calling it yeah. offshoot, you know, cells in Jordan, uh, you know, taking pot shots at the U.S. that is creating conflict. Do you think that that is something to keep an eye on regarding fuel prices? Because if we head into conflict with Iran, obviously that's going to be under threat. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you know, the uh, Gaza, Palestinian, Israel conflict in and of itself probably wouldn't impact um, fuel because they're away from the sources, but a wider conflict would. Uh, and all you have to do is go back to the 1970s, the Yom Kippur War started off our uh, oil shortage. And again, we I don't think that would happen again because we now um, produce um, much more of our, our crude and North America, but if you take off that area and you, you would make things more costly. So, yeah, that, that is a, uh, it's a something to keep an eye on. Uh, conflicts don't make commodities cheaper. So there you go. Yeah. And, and we talked last year about the, the conflict in Ukraine uh, the the overall change there has been very minimal, right? Over the last over the last year, it, it's still an area of high conflict. How is that in How is that influencing global supply chains over the last year? And what do we expect over twenty twenty four? And I realize we can't project really how conflict is going to go, but as far as the impact globally, and and you know we can talk specifically to agriculture, are we seeing 
anything change or are we seeing probably more of the same? So, you know, the the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict caused shortages of grains in particular from Ukraine moving out. Uh, that caused a big spike in prices uh, for the past year or so. Uh, but at the same time, uh, other areas began growing more grain, including Brazil. So it's it sort of rewired the way grain moves around the world. And some areas that were less involved in grain um, became more, not grew more. Brazil produced more more grain because of, of the conflict than uh, would have been without that case. So. We've gotten sort of used to the conflict unless it gets bigger again and and somehow also involves Russia and maybe Europe to a larger degree. But, uh, you know, uh, if, if this conflict just keeps going the way it is, you know, sort of, you know, not that we've rewired the system and we can handle it now. So that, that isn't going to increase our grain prices the next year. Is there is there something to pay attention to within this where you have other agricultural areas like you mentioned Brazil that have started increasing output and I'm I'm guessing probably particularly in barley is is one of the big ones that comes out of Ukraine where let's say the conflict ends in you know we'll say in the next 2 years right because we just don't know mm-hmm. if there is there a risk of that where Ukraine starts ramping up again and bumping out their product on a consistent basis where all these other areas that have reallocated what they're growing, you're looking at the possibility of the price dropping through the floor because of the supply. Is that a possibility that could that could look people need to look at for impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, and again, uh, take Ukraine, Russia, and the conflict, Ukraine begins producing back normal levels again. Uh, Brazil has is cons- consistently moving pasture to grainland and it doesn't move back easily. So all of a sudden you get the gra- the grains in production there. And there is a case where you could see oversupply, particularly if we have good weather in in uh in uh in Brazil or South America and North America. So, you know, the other thing that sort of went on is last year, we in the North America had trend yields, which wasn't wasn't what we could have had. And Brazil was in the midst of a drought, or particular southern Brazil and Argentina. And now we're sort of moving back to normal. So we could see some uh, increases in supply from North and South America. So all of those things, if, you, if you're looking at it right now, you would say, uh, there's a chance that we're going to see grain prices at the levels that they're at now or maybe even lower. Um, so, yeah. So when you know the the big the big question at hand is going to be uh, is going to be the value of land just because of what we do. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what, you know, we talked about a plateau early last year from your perspective. And, and, and you know, I, I have, you know, me walking in here saying like, oh, yeah, we were kind of right. 
tell me how that played out last year and and sort of what that looked like as far as and, and we're speaking specifically you know we'll talk to to your specialty area midwest land values um you know what did we see throughout 2023 yeah so throughout 2023 roughly from uh first quarter on uh Land prices may remain relative, relatively the same, so they, they, they've reached a plateau. Um, we're still in the Midwest. We've had some very good years in uh, 2022, 2021, so that uh, our Midwest farmers are in pretty good financial shape. Uh, so, and so that there was a Plateau, we're looking at lower incomes because of lower commodity prices and, 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 the, and the, the input prices aren't coming down as fast as, uh, as the commodity prices. We have, um, have a situation where we have much higher break-even prices now than before 2020. So we would sort of say you need 480 corn not a break even, and that would have been dollar lower uh, a year ago. So everything the the farm income situation is was lower in twenty twenty three, but we're still in really good financial shape, and so we're coming into twenty twenty four, and uh, uh, incomes will be lower than in twenty twenty two twenty twenty one and. 2020, but they're still not awful. <laughs> are you, you know they're they're just lower. Uh, they won't cause farmers to uh, to uh, to uh, increase their financial position, but they won't degrade it very much either. So you're sort of saying there's is we're at the status quo. <laughs> So we're just going to stay here and 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 see what happens next. So if I were looking forward, I would say that where we're at in 2024 is we have higher cost, lower commodity prices, but things are our incomes are still positive, and generally that results in stable stable farmland prices. It takes a lot to cause farmland prices to move down and you won't see that happen. You're just going to see a plateau until either something good or something bad happens. And there's, there's a, and nothing really to say that either one of those things are going to happen in 2024. We're going to see a little bit of relief on the interest rate side, maybe. But, yeah, we've heard we've heard rumblings of that, right? Everyone's yeah, got to stay yeah. in the interest rates to see what what people can borrow at, and and that'll be that'll be a heavily at play, especially in, when we're talking in real estate. Um, less less so with land markets than say residential real estate, which always skews the yep. any anything that you're looking at because there's not many people that look at agricultural land values that are like we do right but if you're looking you know at some of the larger outlets they're very focused mm -hmm. on residential so you don't see a lot of the, the data come in on on land side or agricultural land outside of academia um so we, we pay attention to that um so you're saying for for 2024 the and we spoke to this when we talked last year where 
the the price of input shot up, right? And once something goes up in just general economics, you're not going to see it drop. It's, you know, whether whether it's profit lines, whether it's corporate interest or whatever, or just because the cost of the input doesn't go back down. Um, you don't generally see a drop. So with those high cost of inputs that we saw in 2023, it's probably not going anywhere for 2024. You're not going to see a relief in fertilizer costs because there's a profit line, right? And and you're going to see that remain. But and so that by itself is going to stabilize the cost, you know, the, the commodity prices themselves. You're going to you're not going to see a drop in corn because the cost of inputs haven't changed. And so you're going to see a stabilization in price while a lot of people don't like that because there's been fairly high prices that people are seeing in the grocery mm -hmm. store. Right. And and so you have that going on. So that that sort of bottom of the chain right there, the, the cost of inputs has sort of stabilized the market, if I'm hearing this right. Yeah, no, we're, we're at a higher, higher cost level. Um, prices are corn prices are 450, 480 for the coming year. And um, we're here. So, yeah, uh, there's I mean, if we if we have record yields, we could see those prices come down, as is typically the case. But then we have higher yields to sort of offset that. Vice versa, if we have uh, production problems in the Midwest or North America, we could see higher prices. And, and that's what you're looking at right now. I guess the wild card I would say is is that Middle East situation. If you're looking at that, um, um, and that could set off another. I, I would I could see that setting off another higher fuel level, and that would also probably then result in higher commodity prices. So uh, that has a inflationary impact overall. So. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the historical precedent. How did that sort of? What was the impact of that? Just for a refresher for anybody listening, because you mentioned this. Yeah, so so the 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 Yom Kippur War that uh, happened in in the early nineteen seventies, and we had fuel shortages. And if you going back to that period, we had high high levels of inflation. That was actually a pretty good time in agriculture. Going back there, we had some 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 higher incomes in there that period. And that actually caused rising farmland prices until roughly the eighties. And when, when Paul Walker came in and said, it's time to clamp down on inflation, raising those interest rates. And that's when we saw the big decline. Uh, again, if you're looking at where we're at, you, if, if you're using that sort of historical analogy, uh, we're not at the point where, People are talking about it raising interest rates, so we're we're not going to see that cause farmland prices decline. We're going to see some erosion in returns and maybe some erosion in cash rents. People are not going to be willing, at least, to see those rents go up, and they may push some of the high end down. But until there's a major impact, major reason or major financial thing that changes that we're sort of where we are. And you mentioned stabilization unless you said something good or something bad happens. 
what are some of the the and I, and I realize that we're we're throwing crystal ball up, right? But like, what do you typically look at as we'll just say kind of a, like a leading indicator of something bad rumbling? What are some of the things that 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 we could anticipate to look for? So you would be concerned. The, the biggest concern, that sort of from a bad side, is uh, uh, China. U.S. conflict because that would likely uh, cause reductions in in uh, soybean flows and other agriculture goods to China, which would then cause price declines here. So that's sort of the biggest bad, if you will, China or the or the biggest market. Um, and, and and other sort of reductions in demand around the world. The biggest good is actually, you know, Ukraine, Russia. War, wars haven't necessarily been bad if they're they're hitting uh hitting uh, production areas. I I don't I don't see a production area, you know, Brazil's not and Argentina aren't in conflict. Maybe another bad is if Argentina actually gets their inflation under control and but that doesn't seem to be uh, so, so some, the, the goods actually is some production problem outside of the United States, if you're a Midwest farmer and you don't really see that happening because Brazil and South America appear to be having a good crop, nothing. So we're, we're sort of here. So. Now, one of the things that we have seen over the last, and you mentioned 2021, 2022, 2023, one of the, 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 the key trend that we've seen all over the place is the price of agricultural land shooting through the ceiling. Um, we've had record sale after record sale after record sale. And I, I quit counting when it started hitting 24,000 an acre mm -hmm. and in some places. That sort of drastic increase you talked to uh despite that farmers are still making margin you like they're paying that much for land and still pulling margin from their from their yields is is the prop up of the those those kind of sky high prices is that creating a risk area in agricultural markets or or is that likely to be stable so yeah that's a, so if we had prices of corn below four dollars and price of beans below now well, let's say 11 we would have some downward pressure on prices having said that that would also probably prompt some disaster assistance from the federal government uh, and it's an election year so um <laughs> uh, so that would probably prompt that. Um, those prices are possible if we have a good year. Again, I don't. Yeah, it's you can always think of that as a crisis point and a risk. I'm not sure it's more now than it was in 2016, 2017, 2018. Actually, I mean so. Um, 
if you're looking at something that causes a break like we had in the 1980s, it's it's kind of hard to see. And I think that's the, that is one of the obvious parallels that people try to have. You, people always look to history of like, well, this is this happening again. And I think, you know, as we look through history, nothing has ever really ever happened again. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, exact repeat. But people look to that and it's it spooks people. And but but we've seen a little it's it's a little more stable. The situation around the land values is a little more stable than what we saw in the 80s. Right. Yeah. And again, you in the 1980s, you had what uh, you had a lot of debt out there, debt financing on, on land purchases. There's much less of that today. Um, most much of the land that's being purchased is being purchased at modest debt levels or no debt levels at all uh, from individuals that have had good years and have the cash to to to, to spare. Um, so you know what made the 1980s bad was that interest rates went up, people had debt, <laughs> and. All of a sudden, the debt servicing went well above the the ability of the farm to generate incomes. This time, if we see sort of a something that causes some anything to happen, it's cash rents that would have to adjust down. And again, those things come down slow <laughs> because uh, farmers. I mean, anytime you're reducing cash rents, there is a risk of losing farmland out there from a farmer standpoint and um, yeah that's just hard to hard to do so uh, while there's debt out there you know even a rise in interest rates isn't the same today as it was in the 1980s because there was much higher debt levels yeah, and before I do anything else, I'm going to adjust my lighting here. I told you about the Casper the Friendly Ghost face that I have going on when it, I had to open my blinds, and now it's the sun came out. <laughs> I don't know if that'll change anything, but we're going to hope. Hey, look at that. I can see my face again. Yeah. Um. So when we're when we're looking at we're looking looking at land for you know the up and coming twenty twenty four, we're looking at stability, still high land prices. Which I mean, like the the key impact there is you spoke to there's there's less leverage on the market nowadays, which which mm -hmm. insulates from risk, and and you know we see that all the time with land loans even with government, you know, backed loans that you see on the market, you're looking at 50% coverage. You know, it's not a tremendous amount of leverage that to go into these. So it's a lot of the people acquiring land or those that already have it, it's like a 1031 exchange that they run into it or, or they're expanding based on profits. You're not seeing a lot of new entry into the market because it's really expensive. And so you're not going to see sort of like this influx that that you might otherwise see if land was of high value or if land was able to be acquired at a low value and you know where that's where markets grow right when something becomes affordable and the price drops out then people jump in right now there's sort of a barrier to entry and and so you see stabilization in in that area you see stabilization in inputs 
you see sort of stabilization in the actual commodities. So, so overall, it's kind of hit this point of equilibrium throughout 2023, 2024 that you project probably is going to go throughout 2024, right? Yeah, I don't see anything. I see farmers coming out of 2024, you know, their incomes are down, um, but not enough to cause major adjustments anywhere. And so we will continue um, with roughly the same cash rent levels, probably no increases, maybe a little bit downward pressure on the high end. Interest rates are stabilizing. And uh, yeah, that it just calls for stability out, out, out there. Again, you don't see interest rates increasing. And hopefully. you probably, <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And you, and you see a, uh, Rental rates of Midwest, Midwest the farmland stabilizing, but not coming down a lot until something happens. Do you see, and we'll, and we'll talk from a Midwest perspective again, any particular areas that are, and I'll say on, on the upside and the downside, at risk for dramatic increases in value or areas that are at risk for dramatic decrease? Because it's it's state to state and region to region when you're looking at yeah. are there Are there any areas that are kind of dealing with a full hand here? So the, the ones that I you sort of look at and wonder about are the, you know, the high productivity farmland, because that went up the most where a lot of the records were set. Um, so that's probably where you're going to see the stability. I wouldn't, again, I think we're looking at a stable situation without much uh, much chance for an upside, but there's nothing bad out there happening. So, so the, the, one, the, 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 the line that increased the most was high productivity farmland in central Illinois, Northeast Iowa. Um, but again, you don't, those areas aren't, uh, are, are also not under a lot of stress. Yeah. And, and you spoke to, you know, international risk. You know, there's, there's the possibility of China. We keep an eye on that. There's the possibility of Iran. And you're talking, you know, one gives us the fuel for export and processing, and one, does a lot of our trade with us like you know that's part of why soybean is i think it's number one export that we have right um you know it's you've got those things out there what are things domestically that that we keep an eye on i know that like the farm bill right is is one that's been yeah you've been kicked down the road for months now and you're and you're right it's an election year don't even know if you'll see momentum on the farm bill before the election yeah so what are some domestic things and and I, and I, I'll do this in a two part question because I'll still consider it domestic weather patterns that we're seeing throughout the U.S. over the last year. We've seen kind of a crazy winter. Are those things that could play a role as we move through 2024? So if you were looking at a recession in the United States, that would curtail or slow down meat demand, which would then slow down demand for corn and soybeans. And that could be a negative impact. Um I don't, you know, I really don't see recession happening there, you know. Yeah, I mean, 
you can see both sides and that, that there's nothing that's saying that we're moving towards that sort of environment. I actually think we are in more of an inflationary environment than people think we are. I, I would disagree somewhat with the Fed that uh, we have these things under control. But uh, so I, I think we'll still see continued upward pressure on prices. And uh, but that's not going to cause problem or not. That's not going to cause much to change in 2024. The weather patterns, actually, from a Midwest perspective, we're getting quite a bit of rain, replenishing our water supplies. So that's probably fundamentally good for us having good yields. Um, drought has either broken or will break when it, um, over much of the Midwest. Iowa still looks dry in the drought monitor. Um, but, I, you know, overall, you would say right now, looking for a normal year for, for this coming year, and a normal year would be above trend yields. So, yeah. Unless, again, we uh, 2023, you sort of were sitting there in the middle of it in, in, in June saying, this, this could be a major drought year. And then rains came and, and we were okay. Um, and again, from a Midwest perspective, at least in the Eastern Corn Belt, we're getting good rains and replenishing water supplies. So we'll be okay. So some, some other areas of the world are, you know, Southwest is still in drought. But they don't produce much grain. So they're, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the the Northwest we've we've seen drought conditions, but you know our our main exports are we we do have rain. I can't undercut that in Idaho. Yeah, you got wheat. The wheat we yeah. got a lot of wheat. Um, dairy is yeah. our big one. Dairy is by far one of the biggest. Um, I think I think next up is just livestock in general, and and there's they're grain dependent, but it's not the grain output isn't as high as what you see in the Midwest. Um, so it sounds like that you know sort of an optimistic year i want to say like it, it, it's not a plateau isn't like the hot topic at hand you know people don't want yeah. to talk about consistency but that is sort of a, a good highlight for what we're looking forward to right yeah i would say that from a farmland market standpoint uh consolidating those sort of gains you had and just holding steady is probably um a fundamentally good thing right you can't keep seeing the price increases that we did um so yeah I, I, again we're probably looking at a sort of lower income year but nothing nothing that would cause stress so here we are i was gonna say it's, it's lower but not something to where like people are going to panic and exit and you know there's still yeah. margin to be made there there's still margin to be made there and Farmers overall are a good financial position, so they can weather some poorer times as well and still have money to buy farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what about you for 2024? You did, The last time I talked to you, you wanted to get some cabin time. And, uh, you know, did, did, did that carry out? Are you going to get some more cabin time this year? Or are you? Uh, yeah. Are you doing a lot of presenting this year? Or 
actually, I'm a I'm I've slowed down my present presenting for this year because I'm working pretty closely with Illinois Corn and a couple other organizations on uh, looking at some uh, some uh, economics of various cover crop uh, tillage systems, etc. So we're getting into the carbon game and more so figuring out what that is. I have a, have a traveled to a number of football games and been to Sedona here recently. <laughs> I was over in Santa Fe. So none of that is, agri- is uh, job related, but <laughs> it's good to see those areas. Uh, the, the South, uh, I, I like the, uh, I like that Arizona, New Mexico area, the high plains or even getting up there where it's a little cool. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, do you like the New Mexico area? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's different than the Midwest. Right? It is very different than the Midwest. I like to joke that everything out there wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Actually, the, the area that's <laughs> true. Actually, that is, yeah, there is a reason why we have Midwest has has blow freezing weather that kills bugs and keeps the insects away <laughs> some of the bad ones but yeah, actually yeah. The, I, I i sort of want to travel some more in the uh uh interim mountain region sort of utah up through through that that area idaho i idaho would be a good place to go and you need to get out of here and try fly fishing yeah, yeah, we don't do that here. So, <laughs> so as far as you mentioned that you're you're kind of slowing down the the, the presentations that you've done because you've always been really really active in in presenting yeah. different organizations talking about grain markets. What is some of the research that you're working on that maybe people should pay attention to? You mentioned because you mentioned the the economics of of you know cover crops and things like that. What what are some of the things that you're working on that that we could expect to see from you? So we are so we're looking at uh, overall what we would call conservation tillage sort of practices, which would include reduced tillage, um, cover crops, and and nitrogen actually overall fertilizer timing and and rates. And the, part of the reason why we're doing that is because of all the conservation concerns, or you know, soil, um, so excuse me, carbon sequestration nutrient runoff and those sorts of things. Um, and we've spent a lot of time looking at cover crops. We unfortunately don't find cover crops to be profitable without a cost share. I mean, so we're, we're, we have farmers doing that. And we went out and interviewed uh, some of the farmers that are the most successful profit-wise with cover crops and looked at what they did. And it, it's sort of interesting. It's always the same thing. Keep costs low and, and work it into the system so that it's uh, um, um, not difficult, I guess, is the way. Cover crops is a big change in practice because you're now pre- planting a second crop that you're not going to harvest and, and you have to terminate it, all of which is more problematic than you think. <laughs> Right. So, 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 so we're looking at the is is it in the same realm as as utilizing sort of native plants in certain areas for a no till kind of practice that sort of yeah 
you you rely on less inputs that way if you do it right. We we've had a lot of conversations with uh, a gentleman named Grant Woods that that works a lot with this kind of stuff, and and he kind of specializes in the whole no till approach. Um, is that sort of what it, what you're looking at? Yeah, economics of this. So just just to give you a feel for this, we look at corn and soybean rotations. From corn to going into soybeans, a pretty standard practice is to, after you harvest the corn, plant cereal rye in the fall. And that plant then grows throughout the fall, but more importantly, in the spring. Uh, it overwinters very well. And then you plant soybeans. And if you work it right, you can reduce your your um, your your herbicides because uh, the cereal rye re uh, reduces, uh, does suppress weeds. The uh, issue is, is, is that reduction in cost from, from cereal, from reduced herbicides doesn't cost, cover the cost of the planting this, the cereal rye itself. So you have to look, be looking at some other gain. And most, well, even the farmers that do it believe that there are gains in conservation and soil health, broadly defined. But uh, we have pretty good soils already. And so um, making those soils better will take some time to see higher yields. So it's sort of, you you have cost up front to that practice. So where's the best place that people could keep track of uh, this research that you're doing? Is it going to be on the, on the university? Uh, FarmDoc. Website or? Yeah. Go, uh, keep going to FarmDoc, uh, FarmDoc website. Um, we, we put some material there already and we'll continue to put it, put it there. Looking, if you look at management section, you'll see, you'll see some of that. And then Illinois corn is publishing it in an area called Precision Conservation Management. So Google that and you'll find work there. Excellent. Excellent. And it's, I mean, this is the, the approach of, of no-till I know has been growing and growing. Like, I feel like that's a really terrible pun I just threw out there, but uh, the, the, that practice has been gaining momentum. And, and so you're sort of, you know, obviously somebody like you would be on the front line of that. So it's, it's a good thing to pay attention to. It sounds like, I don't want to say it's an exciting 2024 and jumping into that, but it does sound yeah, no. a really cool. Yeah, no, yeah. We, we've, I, I decided to, to, to back off from my speaking a little bit, spend some time doing some research. So I have something to talk about. So you getting your hands dirty a little bit this year. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. Yeah. Well, it's been fun. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, but no, I just want to thank you again. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, You know, it's, it's been the second time we've talked now. It's been great each time. So I very, very much appreciate you taking taking the time here to chat with us. Yeah, it's, a, it's my pleasure. You have a, if a, don't see you before, have a good year. So there you go. Likewise, likewise. This concludes episode number 80 of the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing the economic outlook for 2024 with Dr. Gary Schnitke of the University of Illinois. It's hard to express how great it is to talk to somebody like Dr. Schnitke as far as his expertise.
the insight that he brings. It's very, very cool to be able to meet with him two years in a row and get his outlook on the year ahead. So I hope that you value this as much as I did. Uh, let's close this out. You can learn more about the buying and selling of land at National Land.